So James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. We are going to read the passage. I'll pray, and then we will dive right in. So it says this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things that they needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed, uh, believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray. Father, this is your word to us, and we need your help. Not just understand it, but to fully believe it. That we wouldn't be a people who are marked by a dead faith. So would you work today, Father, in us, by your Spirit, would you move um, and lead us into truth, that, that I wouldn't get in the way of it, but that I might just be a vessel, just a mouthpiece to make your truth known. I pray these things, Jesus, in your name, amen. All right, so James opens this section of his letter to the, to, to the church uh, of that day with, with a question. Well, what good is it, what profit is it, if you will, for a man to say he have faith, but that faith not do anything? That faith not produce any action? And the question is, can that faith save him? Now, he tells us three different times in verse 17, he says it works as Faith without works is dead. In verse 8, 28, he says that faith without works is useless. In verse 26, he says that faith without works is dead. And in verse 24, he, he, he really formalizes his idea when he says that, that a person is justified by works and not faith alone. Now, this led us to our own question last week that I brought to you. And in light of the broader teaching of Scripture and our understanding of salvation by faith alone, not by works, no so that no man can boast. Um, How do we reconcile these two ideas? So the question I presented, is a person saved by faith, by works, or by faith and works? Well, the conclusion we came to, uh, the conclusion I brought us to, maybe you don't agree with me, but but that's okay. As I say often, I don't mind if you're wrong, uh, as long as you at least listen. Um, No, that's not true. I, I, I do care if you're wrong. I want you to be right about this. It's intrinsic. Uh, but, but I don't, here's the idea. Here's what we came to Christian. We are saved by faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the faith that saves is a faith that works. 
Paul and James would agree clearly and easily as you read both of them that no one is saved by works alone. Our works, if we separate them from faith in Christ Jesus, will not save us. It doesn't matter how hard you try. It doesn't matter how good you act. It doesn't matter what what you do. If it is not connected to faith in Christ, those works will leave you condemned. Paul says, and clearly says over and over, we read a number of verses. You can go back and listen to it. Go back and look at the notes from last week. Paul clearly says that we are saved by faith alone. James says here, by faith and works. Well, are they contradicting each other? No. The point we made last week, the point we saw last week, was that they're complementary. That they they don't contradict, but they complement one another. Paul, according to Douglas J. Moo, uh, a name I found out was expected to bring a joke for me. Um, I'm still going to not say anything about the joke, but that's his name. Uh, he is a theologian that's written one of the best uh, commentaries available on the book of James. And he writes, Paul strikes at legalism, James at quietism. Each message needs to be heard. They're fighting the same fight on different fronts. They are, they are about the same Thing. They are not facing off against one another. One's not trying to prove the other wrong. Um, they are seeking to address the same problems from different perspectives. That, that, that they're complementing one another. They're helping one another out. Faith, and Paul would agree with this, if it is true, if it is truly being placed in Jesus Christ will naturally lead out to good works. And I showed you that in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, we see we're not saved by faith and works, but we are saved to good works. A real faith in Jesus Christ will work. As John Calvin says it, the great reformer, he says, it is therefore faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. It's never alone. Just as the heat alone of the sun, just as it is the heat alone of the sun which warms the earth, and yet in the sun it is not alone because it is constantly conjoined with light. You cannot feel the warmth of the sun without standing in its light. You cannot hold faith in Christ without it doing some work in you and through you. It will bear fruit. We are saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ. But that faith is a faith that works. So are we saved by faith, by works, or by faith and works? We're saved by a faith that works. And that's the answer to that question. Well, well what do we do though? What do we do with this? How do we then step in and really seek to understand what James is saying? Well, with that in mind, with that complementary idea in mind, I think it's easy to begin to see his point is, very clearly, faith that does not act, faith without works, is dead. I, there's no secret here. There's nothing hidden in the Greek that you need to f- figure out and understand. There's no nuance of language. Faith that does not work is dead. He clearly, in his questions and in his teaching here, he clearly demonstrates that not all faith is a saving faith. We believe in a lot of things. James clearly makes that distinction between between faith that saves and faith that doesn't save. 
Or if we aren't careful, we'll jump right into the, to the text, 14 through 26, and assume, well, any faith that works is a saving faith. We can't do that. James doesn't allow for that. In fact, James has already highlighted the importance of the right object of our faith, but he doesn't do it immediately connected to these verses. You want to see where he does it? It's in the same chapter. James chapter 2, verse 1. Just slide your finger up on the page just a little bit, or if you're on a phone, just scroll down just a little bit to get to the top of the chapter. And he says, James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. James is assuming, has already been assuming, that these are people who hold to the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this verse, we can clearly see that he assumes that that faith in our Lord Jesus Christ makes certain lifestyles and certain activity incompatible with faith in Christ. In fact, if you follow the passage, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And then verses 2 through verses 13, he explains the sin of partiality and why it's incompatible with faith in Jesus Christ. It's almost like an aside. It's not. He's not stepping off and making some side point. But it does keep us from clearly seeing his line of thinking. We could just as easily, without changing the meaning of this text at all, read chapter 2, verse 1, immediately followed by verse 14. We would just miss out on the, the, the important teaching of the sin of partiality and and. And I don't, want to, I don't want to say we should remove it. I'm just saying for the sake of us understanding his point and his line of thinking, I think it would be helpful. So here we go. Chapter 2, verse 1. My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He's just given you the work that you're not supposed to do. You're not supposed to hold any kind of partiality. If you, or you're not supposed to show any kind of partiality if you hold faith in the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. What good is it, my brothers... If someone says he has faith, but does not have works. You see, he gives us a lot to understand. He gives us, in fact, it took us a couple weeks to work through it. He gives us important pieces of the puzzle that we need to see. When he teaches us about the sin of partiality and how it's breaking the law of loving neighbor as self. It's incompatible with a life of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But his thinking from verse 1 of chapter 2 to verse 14, his line of thought hasn't changed an ounce. You cannot say you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ if you will not act on it. You cannot suggest that you trust him or that you believe in him or that he is your Lord and Christ if you won't act like it. Faith without works, is dead. Now, why do I make this point? Why am I drawing this out? Why am I making sure we see it? Because not every faith is a faith that saves. And before we get into verses 14 through 26 and see his illustrations about what a dead faith looks like, we must first understand that he is not suggesting that you can place your faith in anything and work and then expect when you show up in eternity. Well, I had faith. Faith in what? My faith worked. 
But what was your faith in? But we can have faith in all kinds of things. And James will not allow that that is a living faith. In fact, everyone, if you think about it, everyone has faith in something. And that faith leads them to act in certain ways. Kamikaze pilots of World War II, good example, I think. They were clearly devoted to and believed in Japan and the emperor of Japan. In fact, one of the stories I read about kamikazes was that they equated the emperor and Japan. They, they equated them as one. It was almost as if they had deified their emperor. And I didn't get in a lot, into a lot of the studies of their religion, and maybe may, they, they might have. They were clearly devoted to, believed in Japan, the emperor, and, and, and they would fly these suicide missions, fly their airplanes into our ships in the hopes of turning the tide of war. Well, a man named His, I'm not going to say this correctly, Hisao Horiyama, I don't know if that's even close, uh, sorry if it's not, but he was a pilot, he was supposed to be a kamikaze pilot, he had trained as a kamikaze pilot, and before his number was drawn, or before his name was called to, to go fly his mission and, and end in death, Japan surrendered and he didn't have to. A few years ago, back in 2015, there was a, a report, uh, a reporter that wrote a story about this, and he went and interviewed a couple of these kamikaze pilots that actually lived to tell the story uh, because they didn't complete their mission. This is what he says about that. We were trained to suppress our emotions. Even if we were to die, we knew it was for a worthy cause. They were convinced of it. They were convinced that their cause was better than any other cause. It was enough to die for. He goes on, dying was the ultimate fulfillment of our duty. We were commanded not to return. We knew that if we returned alive, that our superiors would be angry. They did not want to dishonor themselves. They did not want to dishonor their families. They knew that their, that, that their cause was good. They knew that their superiors would be angry. They would be disgraced. And that knowledge, they believed it. And because they believed it, these men would climb into planes and they'd fly them into ships and kill themselves and many other people along with them. I think we could agree. They had faith. But they had a faith that left them condemned. There are all kinds of examples of misplaced faith in the world that, that we live in. Most of you have heard this silly little illustration about a chair, and if you believe the chair will hold you, you'll sit in it. That is a faith that will not save you eternally, right? It might make you comfortable for the next 45 minutes, but it's not going to save you. The problem is, is that's insignificant to the other types of faith we hold. There's a lot of people in our world, in fact, every religion outside of Christianity would teach that in some way, if you're going to reach nirvana and reach heaven, whatever comes after, that you've got to do good things. You've got some moral law to live up to. A lot of people believe that. And when they believe that, the object of their faith is their works and that moral law, whether they make it up or whether it was given to them by someone. And that leaves them condemned. That faith is dead because the object of that faith is dead. Or we could just, like so many in our culture already do, just decide that we're already good enough. 
We're not trying to attain some moral law. We're just trying not to be too bad against the moral law. Well, I haven't done any of the major sins. Like, I haven't murdered anyone. I don't, I don't sleep around on my wife. You know, I, I've not done anything really bad. I've told a lie, but come on. I mean, it's a little white lie. Yeah, that kind of faith. That I'm already good enough. The object is me. Well, if I'm dead, what is my faith? Dead. You see, faith does not intrinsically bring power or life. Faith, as James is teaching it here, gets its life and its power from its object. That's why your little bitty faith, faith as a mustard seed, when placed in Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection and his death and resurrection, that will make you alive. It's not the faith in and of itself. It's the object of the faith that determines whether it is living or not. This James isn't saying in 14 through 26 that we can just believe in anything and act on whatever we want to and think that we'll be saved when we get to heaven because all roads don't lead there. Only one does. His name is Jesus. And if you do not place your faith in him, you stand condemned. Your faith is dead. It is useless. It is powerless. It will not achieve what you hope it will achieve. But, James says, the faith that is in Jesus Christ is a faith that works. It actually does save. It actually does accomplish something. It's not useless. He doesn't say it explicitly, but he's demonstrating this in contrast. It is powerful. It does bear eternal fruit. That's the heart of the point that he's making. It does something in us, changing us, making us new, and giving us new desires and new purposes in life, and therefore new activity to engage in. makes us look radically different than we used to. Unless you're a Pharisee. Or unless you're a really self-righteous person sitting in church for years and years and years, looking very moral on the outside while you're dead on the inside. Then you may not look much different, but the reasons you do what you do will be radically different. Because you have trusted in what Christ has done instead of trusting what you can do. So he makes this point in verses 14 through 26 now. Now we see the object of our faith, right? It is Jesus Christ. Nothing else. Christ and Christ alone. But he makes this point that faith in Christ is a faith. The faith that saves is a faith that's in Jesus Christ and is a faith that works. He makes that point through four illustrations in this text, in verses 15 through the end of the, the, the 
chapter, verse 26. He's got four illustrations. And, and there's two ways that we can go about this. There's two ways we're going to go about studying this. This first week, we're going to look at the contrast between the first two and the last two. The first two illustrations are negative illustrations. They are illustrations of what dead faith is. And then the, the last two, the second two, are illustrations of what living faith or true faith. And I don't want to say true faith. In fact, true faith actually acts. Saving faith is placed in Christ and acts, right? There's a difference. There's a lot of people that have true faith, but it's not in Christ, and so it's not saving. So we, we want to be careful how we use our language there. But so the second week, and this is what we'll do next week, is we'll look at the way, because the first two illustrations are, one is about our action toward man and our response before God, and the second two illustrations is one of them is about our response toward God and our action toward Man, and we'll look at it from that perspective next week. This week, we're going to focus on the contrast between two negative illustrations and two positive illustrations. Let me just give you the point that we're going to build out, and then we'll work through the passage, and I think it'll be easily enough seen. Christian, we are saved by faith alone in our Lord Jesus, in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the faith that saves is more than a claim to faith and accurate knowledge of God. Now, this might strike some of us because... We listen to people use big theological terms or we point at somebody that said a prayer once and we just, oh, man, they're Christian. Well, James says that may not be so. He's not challenging. He's not, in, 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 he's not intending to cause you to doubt your salvation. He's challenging us so that we will find greater assurance in the faith that saves. And so hopefully when we're all done with this, that you will feel more assured that your faith is true and that your salvation is secure in Christ, and if not, at least you'll know. At least you'll be confronted with the truth, and you have an opportunity to do something about it today. Believe in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. All right, the first two examples illustrate for us what saving faith isn't. Let's look at them. Beginning in verse 15, we see the first one. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, James isn't suggesting that we have to do everything for every person in need. But doing something for someone who is definitely in need, and, and, and let's, just, let's just clear it up. He's not saying that this person has... has enough food to get through the week. He doesn't have enough food to get through the day. It's not that this guy's really naked. It's just his clothes are, are, are falling off. I mean, this guy's in trouble. It's obvious need. It's not just a want. It's not just something he desires to have. It's something he really needs. But James isn't saying we have to fix everything for this person. That, but, but, but the suggestion here is, is that if we do nothing when this person is in need, except say, Lord bless you, and what have we really done? Is it wrong to pray for the person? No, you, we should pray for the person. But what have we really done if all we do is offer this blessing? Go, be well, have enough food. But I don't. Stay warm, I can't. And then we walk away. 
the point he's making is he's, he's not trying to draw out a command about how we should act to the poor. He's already done that. But the point he wants us to see is that every one of us know that simply saying, be well, be warm, be fed, doesn't actually mean anything. Every one of us know that in our heart. The people then knew that in their heart. We see this when we go to Africa. It's the craziest thing to me. We, we, well, it's not the craziest thing. It's just ironic. We see it unfold in front of us in a real-life scenario. These, we're trained as we go to Africa. One of the points of training is we're preparing to go. or these, We're made ready for these little boys that are going to come running to us. Every time we get out of the gas station, anytime we're in public, uh, in cities, we're going to have hordes of little boys come begging. They've got their little buckets that, they've, you know, the, that they're begging and and collecting money, and they've been sent out by their Quranic teacher to collect money for him. It's not a good practice. It's not a right practice. It's not even an approved practice. It's just something that happens. It's a standard practice. These Quranic teachers send these little boys out to beg. If they bring enough money back, then that's great. If they don't bring enough money back, they get beaten. And so the idea here is is that you're supposed to do something to help these little boys. And in fact, in the teaching of Islam, that, that they're actually doing you a favor. Because one of the five pillars of truth is that you're supposed to be giving alms to the poor. And so one of the ways that you make it to heaven in Islam is to give to the poor. And so they're doing you a favor by presenting the poor to you so that you can give to them. But what's completely acceptable, completely okay in their tradition is just simply to say, Alabatica. And I... I don't know the exact translation of that. I just know it's a blessing. The Lord bless you. And you see a lot of them do it. Most, most people, as I've watched and observed, most people don't give money. They put their hand in their chest and they just nod a prayer. It's not a blessing. Alabatica. I want the Lord to bless them. I, we don't have the money to give to the thousands of, of little boys that this happened to, but I want the Lord to bless them. But no matter how many times that people say alabatica to them, if they don't bring money back to the chronic teacher, they're still getting beat. What good did that blessing do them? John picks up on this idea in his letter to the church. He says, brothers or little children. I'm sorry, not he's... he's He's not calling us brothers. He's calling us little children. Uh, 1 John 3, 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. The idea is, is that all of this together is to show us. He's making a point here. James is driving a point home. If we speak our faith and don't act upon our faith, that faith is dead. The faith that saves does more than talk. It is expressed in word and deed. Saying a prayer as a child and never acting differently as a result of what you say you believe might just be condemning you in dead faith. I'm not suggesting that that prayer wasn't a moment of salvation. But if it was, A transformed life will be the result. See, our version of this kind of activity is when we know someone's in trouble and we say to them, hey, let me know if I can do something for you. 
Instead of looking for how we serve them, how we join them, we put the burden on them. Oh, if you need help in this time of need, why don't you humiliate yourself a little more and begin to ask me for it? What, is it, what does it do for them when we say, let me know if you need some help, instead of just simply looking for a way? Now, I know it's a lot of times we don't know there's trouble. If, if there's any way I can help you, I, I tell visitors to the church this all the time. I don't know what their life holds. I don't know what difficulties they are dealing with. If there's any way I can serve you, please, if any way this church can serve you, please let us know. But when we are walking in relationship together and we see trouble in each other's life and we just simply say to each other, ah, let me know if I can help you. That soothes our conscience because we've made ourselves available. But it doesn't really serve them in any way. It just puts another burden on them. James' whole point in in, in drawing this out is it in the same way, simply saying, I hope you stay warm and get enough food, or, hey, let me know if you have any needs. He's simply saying that, just simply saying that I have faith doesn't actually accomplish anything. In fact, I like the way Thomas Manton says it. Uh, He's an old Puritan author that wrote an extensive commentary on the gospel or the letter of James. He he writes this, "The, the apostle compares faith and good deeds and shows that phony faith avails no more than phony good deeds. Faith that's not in Jesus Christ and, and, and then not even truly believing in Jesus Christ will only ever lead us to a place of doing just enough to look like we're good people. It's never going to cost us unless it has to cost us to keep up this image, to prove ourselves to people to ensure that we're affirmed and accepted based on what we do brothers and sisters talk is cheap actions speak louder than words in affirming what we believe and don't believe don't misunderstand don't misunderstand we must confess our faith we must profess it with our mouths we have to preach it for anyone else to come to faith but James's point is that actions that follow our claim of faith prove that faith true or false. The faith that saves does more than talk. It is expressed in words and deed. Saving faith is professed, but it's also lived. That's the point of the first illustration. Second, the transition here, we'll transition into the second. He, he goes on, he says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the de- demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And he asks the question. So, so in this second illustration, he enters into a debate with an imaginary objector. It's a, this person that's challenging his position and he enters into it and he shows them just how serious he feels about it because in verse 20 he says, you foolish person, you foolish objector. You want to you see? And he's going to go into the last two illustrations. But, but the reality is we don't have to go into the last two to really see the depth of what he's pressing at. In, in verse 18 and 19... He shows us that just simply saying, I have faith 
And that God is one, which for the Jew, and this is written to Jewish Christians, they, that's the Shema, they would have said that over and over. God is one. That's part of their religious tradition. You believe that? You hold orthodox theology? You, you have accurate perspectives about who God is and how God works? Great. You do well. That's a good thing. But so do the demons. So do the demons. So the faith that saves does more than know the right things. It trusts the right one. The faith that saves does more than know the right things. It trusts the right one. It knows and apprehends the truth, but saving faith doesn't stop at knowing. It moves to trust. James, to a point, shows us that even demons hold orthodox perspectives. They, they hold, I, I, I'm guessing, I, I could be wrong about this. I, I'm guessing that they are likely um, amillennial Calvinists wrestling between new covenant and covenant theology because they're, they're right. They know. Well, that's if they agree with me. But James tells us that they have an orthodox perspective of God being one. They know God. In fact, they know God better than you and I know God. They've actually been in God's presence and been removed from God's presence. They know his holiness in ways that you and I will never know. Or we will know his holiness in eternity. They know his Trinitarian identity in ways that it causes us cramps to think about. They know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They didn't even question it. When Christ walked into a town and met a demon-possessed person, they knew they would have to submit to his authority because he is the Son of God, the Christ. In fact, in one instance, they're like, oh, wait a minute. Are you here to torture us? It's not the time yet. They even understand that God has a timeline at which he's at work to bring redemption and restoration of all things. And they shudder. They're moved emotionally about this. This isn't just an intellectual thought. It's not just a theory. They are literally quaking in fear when they consider it. And yet it does them no good. It does absolutely nothing for them. I want to be careful. I don't think the illustration should be pushed to the place that I think James is saying if a demon would believe that he'd be saved and could be saved by faith. I don't don't think that's what James is trying to to show here. What he's showing here is that you can hold that knowledge. You can even have an emotional response to it, even a visceral response. Not not visceral, but but a deep response to it. And it'd be no different than the demon's. So you can come into a church building on a Sunday morning. The lights, the smoke, the show, the performance. I'm not, I'm not against those things. Don't, don't misunderstand. But, but they can move you. And we can determine if we've worshipped because I had an emotive response to it. A lot of times we're measuring our emotion and whether the doctrine is accurate or not. The demons emote in response to a right doctrine 
and it does them no good. We can emote, we can hold right doctrine, and if it does not move us to trust the one in whom it represents, we'll, spend, we'll, we'll be in good company as we spend eternity under God's wrath. That kind of faith is dead. It does nothing. See, right doctrine, accurate theological perspectives are important. We're going to fight for them here. We're going to strive to teach them here. We're not going to shame away or shy away from theological doctrinal terms. In their music, we're going to seek to ensure that it speaks doctrinal truth. We're going to seek to ensure that the gospel is proclaimed. We started a whole ministry because we wanted you to learn more about the doctrines of the Bible. The equip classes that start at 9 o'clock. The intent is to prepare you not just to know, but to practice and apply these doctrinal truths. Because we know that you must know them if you're going to believe them. But we know that that faith in believing them doesn't just give you knowledge of God. It leads you to know God. To know Him intimately. To to walk with Him in relationship and submit to Him as Master. To live a life of obedience before Him. The faith that saves does more than know the right things. It trusts the right one. It does know and apprehend truth, but it doesn't stop at knowing and apprehending truth. It moves to trust. Now, I could point out the trusting of the right one in a number of different illustrations. I could point to you uh, from, from the next two, but I want to leave those for next week. I want you to see this, though. You, you got to see this. One of my favorites in all of the scriptures from the book of John, and you might remember, I don't know if you remember this or not, but John wrote his gospel. He says in John chapter 20, verse 31, that he wrote his gospel so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing you would have eternal life. Even he longs for a real faith in the Son of God. In his gospel, you can see it over and over expressed. One of my favorites in John 6, we find the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus challenges his disciples. There's this large crowd coming and his apostles, his closest followers. He says, what are we going to feed them? And they're like, I don't know. We don't have enough money to feed all these people. We're in a distant place. There's no place around that we can go to feed all these people. Andrew brings this little boy with his lunch of five loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus starts, he blesses them. He starts to break them apart. He doesn't, start, he doesn't stop breaking them into pieces until everyone has eaten their fill and there's 12 baskets of leftovers. So the people, the 5,000 men and however many women and children were there, we don't know exactly, the people are convinced that Jesus is a prophet. And Jesus perceives in their heart that, hey, wait, wait a minute, something, something's happening here. They're going to try to force me to be king. So he withdraws from them. And that night, his apostles go across the sea. And then he meets them along the way. Uh, there's a story about that. I won't get into it. It's not necessary for this. He meets them in, on the sea as they're fighting for it. They get to the other side. And the next morning, this large crowd comes looking for him. And they engage in conversation. This is what happens. John chapter 6, verses 25 to 28. 
When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, where did you come? When did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, because you ate your fill of loaves. You're not seeking me because you saw a sign that points you to trust and know God. You want more food. You're hungry again. Jesus answered them. Or I'm sorry. Do not work. He goes on in verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? They understand that they are now in a spiritual conversation. They're no longer just talking about this miracle that he's done. They're being confronted about how they're not seeing him for who he is. And they understand that they're being challenged on what they're doing versus what they're believing. And and they say to him, what do we need to be do? What do we need to do to be doing the works of God? Here's Jesus' answer, John chapter 6, verse 29. Jesus answered them. This is the work of God, that you believe. Not that you go to church on Sunday. Not, not, not that you pray a certain number of times a day. Not that you follow some moral code. The work of God that you is, the, that you believe in whom he has sent. Faith without works is dead. Just saying I have faith is empty and it's useless. Holding a right perspective, holding a right doctrine by itself is useless. If I don't trust the one who gives it. It's not just about getting facts. It's not just about having a vocabulary. It's not even about being able to check a bunch of boxes and say, see, I do this. Because those works separated from faith are useless. Do you trust him? Do you believe in him? See, the reality is, is when you do, when you really trust him, when you really believe that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, it's very natural for you to obey. Very natural for you to honor him and give him thanks. Very easy for you to desire to be among his people so that we can encourage one another and spur each other on to good works, looking forward to the day that he returns. You see, the, the reason that James is pressing on this is because he's writing to a people. It appears he's writing to a people whose pendulum has swung. They were trapped in legalism for years and years and years, and their pendulum has swung. Now we're saved by grace through faith. We don't have to do anything. We can sit here, be fat, dumb, and happy. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. We can be Christian hedonists and and, and, and what that means in, in their terms would be live for all the joy that this world might have to offer while all the time ignoring the God who saved us, thinking, oh, he'll be there on the day we die. Real faith 
in Jesus Christ as Lord will lead you to works. It'll give you a desire for works. The faith that saves is proved to be saving faith by what it does in response to the truth. And the next two illustrations bear that out clearly. Look at Abraham. He acted when he believed. Look at Rahab. She acted on what she believed. Faith can't help but work if it's real. Saving faith placed in Jesus Christ will lead to good works, righteous works. It's the natural result. In his commentary, J.A. Mottier quotes Albert Barnes. He says, There is as much necessity that faith and works should be united to constitute true religion as there is that body and soul should be united to constitute a living man. There's not one of us that would walk up to a casket. In fact, I did this this week. My, my wife's great uncle passed away and they had her funeral. And on Monday we went. And, and you know, as, a, as is the tradition here, you walk up and you see the corpse. I cracked a joke. It's probably a little bit inappropriate. I did it just between Amy and I. Sorry, it was part of the story. <clears throat> there was a video camera and it was pointed at the casket. I was like, what? What's that for? They're not expecting him to get up and move. Like, what are they? What's that about? I don't know if it's a service that the funeral home provides. I, I, I don't know. It wasn't. It, it looked like it was trained right on the casket. And I'm not trying to make light of that. It just this reality. We know. He's dead. That dead man... Or that dead body, because he's no longer there. He was a Christian, absent from the body, is present with the Lord. That dead body will do nothing but rot and begin to stink. Your faith in the wrong object and separated from the good works that result from placing it in the right object will do nothing but sit here and rot and stink. All right. Our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will save us. But that faith must do more than make a claim. It must do more than just know about Jesus. It must trust Jesus. Where are you today? What do the works of your life demonstrate about what you believe? About who you believe in? Are you saved by that faith? Let's pray.